unexpected doorways. I stood there. I stood there outside a door. Underneath my feet, the more than 100-year floorboards. I remember them vibrating my feet. <laughs> a 300-voice choir, a full orchestra, a German-style pipe organ in full peel. I went through a door and walked up to a platform and stood behind a pulpit where George W. Truett had preached from, 19, from 1897 to 1944. Most of the presidents of the 20th century had stood there, and I was about to stand there and be called to follow the man who followed our namesake. I stood at that door. Two years and four months later, I stood at another door. It was a door at the corner of Ridgemar Boulevard and Ems Road in West Fort Worth. I had in my hand 50 brochures for pre-need funerals. I stood at a door, about to knock on the door, and to try to sell somebody their own funeral and funeral plot. I stood at that door. Five years after that, I stood at the door outside the International Ballroom of the Fairmont Hotel in downtown Dallas. The late Reverend Dr. E.K. Bailey had asked me over to preach at a preaching conference. I really thought I was going to a place where there was just a, a small room full of preachers, and I walked in there, and there were some 800-plus preachers, and it suddenly seized me, I'd better preach. <laughs> going through that door opened another door. Right back there, that door. 2003, the dean of this seminary asked me to come back for reasons that I won't go into against all odds, both personally and institutionally. See if I would speak at a pastor's conference at this school. I'd never been on the campus. Only knew about the school from a distance, but I walked through that door, door to door to door to door. <laughs> we were asking this series to talk about texts that shape us, words from God that define us. Now, some of you have had the experience of knowing that prospectively. As a baby, you were dedicated, you were handed a Bible. Some parent gave you a life verse. Maybe you selected one on some retreat somewhere. And prospectively, you've lived your life out of that verse of Scripture. It may be so for you. Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, famously took as his life verse to know him and to make him known. I've never had anything just like that. The Bible seemed too full of verses to choose one for me. I have to do it retrospectively take the stuff of my own life and throw it back against some biblical passages to try to help me make sense of what happened to me. W.H. Alden said, it's not so much that you read a book as that a good book reads you. And in a sense, it's not so much that we read text as that sometimes text can read us. And the Joseph story is like that for me. They read suggestively, 
something that would remind us of the good outcome of this long and convoluted story that begins in Genesis 37 and doesn't reach its penultimate moment until chapters later. But when I throw the experiences of my life up against Joseph and I look at his ambition, his lack of discretion, I look at what others did to him by favoritism and by schadenfreude, secret joy at his fall, I get to understand a little bit about my own experience. But make no mistake about this. This is not a be-like sermon. We need to be very careful when we say be-like some biblical character. I'm not comparing myself to Joseph, not in any sense. He's one of those titanic figures of salvation history, sui generis, one of a kind. Nobody's like him. And yet from these Olympian biblical characters, sometimes when we hear the great symphony of their lives, a few chords vibrate in our own lives. When we look at their giant footprints and we put our little feet into them, sometimes they help us understand the way that we have gone. Or to put it this way, in the Victorian Albert Museum, there are seven huge paintings by Raphael that were executed 1516 to 1519. Unusually, they're called cartoons. In the art world, that means a picture painted for another purpose. They're beautiful in and of themselves. But he painted scenes from the life of Peter and Paul to send them to Belgium so they would be cut into little pieces and there put behind the looms of tapestry makers whose names we don't know. And with a little piece of that big picture, they would match it with thread and weave in and out of those masterpieces. In a way, when I take a big story like this and cut it down into little pieces, I can thread a little bit of my own life through that big picture of someone like Joseph. And when I look at that picture, it lets me know this, that in spite of the complex difficulties that we cause to ourselves or that others cause to us, even when there seems to be no exit, God is intentionally and invisibly at work. Yes, he is. Sometimes we get sandwiched between difficulties that we cause and that others cause us. It's one reason I like the richly textured life of Joseph. He seems to be caught between those two extremes. On the one hand, Joseph did cause some of his own troubles, the favorite kid of Jacob from a second family. He didn't mind showing up in a Brioni suit while his brothers were wearing Dickie Dusters, not at all. He never seemed to know when to get quiet. He didn't have the discretion to subordinate himself and make peace with those brothers. He showed up and said, hi, y'all, I had a dream. <laughs> we were out in the back 40, and my sheaf was standing up like a power forward. And the rest of you guys were around like guards and you didn't rebound anything. And he came back the next day, <laughs> never knowing when he'd said enough. And he said, hi, y'all. <laughs> I had another dream. It's about the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he said, uh, here being the interpretation, Daddy Jacob, you the sun, Mama the moon, all the rest of you all the stars. 
and all y'all kissed up to me. That's a southern translation. <laughs> he didn't have enough sense not to drive up in a Porsche one day and make his brothers mad, so the next day he drives up in a Lamborghini. It just wasn't good sense. He created many of his own problems. But on the other hand, others created problems for him, did they not? There was that hatred of his brothers, the jealousy born out of this favored child. <laughs> and then there was that, that schadenfreude, that interesting word, a kind of morose delectation in the bad things that happened to somebody else. There was Potiphar's wife, who was in the original pilot for Desperate Housewives, and even though she was Mrs. Robinson, unlike Dustin Hoffman, Joseph had enough sense to run away and get out of the house. There was forgetfulness, was there not, on the part of the cupbearer who was supposed to help him but forgot him. When he got back to the executive suite, he forgot all about Joseph back down there in the jail. When you read the life story of Joseph, it's so true to life. He caused many of his own problems. With his indiscretion, his ambition, his not knowing when to talk and when to be quiet, but then others caused problems for him, did they not? Texts that shape us. I have to talk for a moment a little bit like Paul when he talked like, I, I know I sound crazy, but you really can't talk about your life without talking about your life. <laughs> For about a couple of decades, I came to be a fair-haired boy of Southern Baptist and the good old BGCT. <laughs> I went from a good church to the biggest church in one town to one of the biggest churches of all. Same month I finished my Ph.D. here, I spoke to the Southern Baptist Convention five times in Pittsburgh, interpreting the theme for the meeting. That led to another invitation to preach to the whole meeting, an annual sermon hoping to try to make peace in the middle of a war. Peace broke out for about 30 minutes. <laughs> that led to being on 500 radio stations and on and on and on, being promoted because of favoritism until finally I wound up standing outside that door with those boards vibrating underneath my feet. But let me tell you something. Sometime when you think that you've caught your destiny, your destiny has caught you. One strong gift may take you where the absence of any other gifts cannot keep you. And I found out that strange mixture of things that I did to myself in ambition and lack of discretion mixed together and hit head-on with some other folks who didn't mean me all that much good, and the mixture of all of that is what caused me to stand at the corner of Ridgemar Boulevard and Ems Road trying to sell people their own funerals two months, two years and four months later. See, life's like that. The interesting thing about Joseph is his life seemed to be just so happening. Here's not Daniel throwing open a window toward Jerusalem doing his morning devotions. Here's not Abraham burning sacrifices. Here's somebody living life. And through some of his own misjudgments and those of others, he wound up where he was. That makes life wobble sometimes. <laughs> June 10th of 2000, Queen Elizabeth II dedicated the Millennium Bridge 
in London. It was the millennium, and there hadn't been a bridge over the Thames in a hundred years, not a new one. 2,000 people got on it, and as they began to walk on it, to the horror of its world-famous engineer, it began to wobble. It wobbled badly. Some people were holding on to the sides of it. Well, they shut it down. Next day, they only let people on in little groups, increments, and it wobbled again. People holding on. Well, they shut the thing down. Some said it was the wind. Some said it was something nobody understood. They found out that what happened in the footfalls of people on that bridge, the people made the bridge wobble, and the bridge began to make the people wobble. It was a closed loop. The more the bridge wobbled with the oscillation of the people, the more they wobbled with the oscillation of the bridge until the whole thing got very wobbly. Without patronizing anybody, you may, you may in prospect not understand that. But in retrospect, I would wager that somebody here over the next decade is going to find themselves creating wobbles and getting wobbled back by what you create. But look at this from another angle of vision. Even though God is working, you may spend a time vulnerable and at risk without knowing what's going on. From the time he was 17 to the time he was 30, Joseph was there in the midst of this kind of soap opera. Up and down and up and down and up and down. Four different cycles. You remember the story from Sunday school. Up in front of his brothers, down in the cistern, up in the house of Potiphar, down in the accusation, up in the jail when he's the dream interpreter, down when the cupbearer forgets him, up again. The interesting thing is, where's God in all of this? Joseph doesn't seem to wake up every morning and do his morning devotionals, really. <laughs> he just seems to be living life. Now, the narrator says, that God's chesed, that covenant mercy, is working all the time, but Joseph doesn't even know it. Somewhere Brueggemann makes this statement about this story. He says, what you see in Joseph is the difference between real life and the role faith plays in it. And Brueggemann says it's like a sandwich. <laughs> some of it's real life, some of it's faith, and he says how you put that sandwich together determines how faith works in your life. And sometimes it gets messy in the middle of it. Look at some motifs in this passage of Joseph. <laughs> Two times he's left naked and exposed. It's kind of a theme, isn't it? They sell him, strip him of his coat, and there he is in that, in that cistern exposed. Things go up and then once again, when Mrs. Potiphar grabs his coat, he's left again. In fact, he never gets clothed until, by sheer grace, Pharaoh gives him a linen garment, and he gets more than he lost. He gets that gold chain around his neck. But he spends a good part of the time living in those times. In that, in that world, a world of Hebrews that didn't know anything about Britney Spears or Benetton ads to be exposed like that, it was a shame. It was a humiliation. It was to be vulnerable. It was to want to go and hide. 
And he felt that way during this experience. But another thing happened. He used the gifts that God gave him for lesser purposes. <laughs> he became the go-to guy when he was in the county jail <laughs> to interpret dreams. So the Egyptian bureaucrats came to him, told him the dreams, he interpreted them. <laughs> he was the go-to guy for dream interpretation. Here was this one whose dreams would save an empire and would lead to the unfolding of salvation history in jail, interpreting the dreams of some disgruntled bureaucrats of Pharaoh. He used his gifts for lesser things. Something else happened to him. This all-competent one who seems to know how to run the Egyptian FEMA for 14 years <laughs> has to wait in jail just for somebody to help him. He'll be the COO of Egypt, but he just sits there. It's pitiful, hoping that a cupbearer, if he gets out, will remember that he had a friend who told him his dream. When I thread life through those scenes from Joseph's life, I have a little sense of that. It is interesting when nobody understands what you did or why you did it, and they think they did, to feel vulnerable and exposed when you move from a big house to a tiny apartment, when you've been a highly visible TV preacher and you just vanish, when you have to give up everything you ever had and go to a used furniture store. I think one of the, one of the lowest memories of my life, and, and it wrestled with quite a few others, was going to a used furniture store. You have to pay cash every week. And I remember a kind of inane clerk said, well, let's dance through this and see what you want to get. I didn't feel like dancing through there. I felt like crawling through there. But God is still at work. Sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of things that we created and others did for us, and we start to use gifts God gave us for lesser things than God intended. Up to this time in my own life, I'd spent 26 years writing a sermon every week, writing books, writing dissertations, preaching thousands of times. But then, because of decisions I made and decisions others had made for me, whatever gifts God had given me, I started using for less than he intended. I may be the only Ph.D. in patristic hermeneutics to write an article about an iguana who saved a man's life. <laughs> Launched a pet magazine. I remember interviewing a guy out in Arizona. He was hyperallergic. The only pet he could have was an iguana who slept on his chest at night. He suffered from sleep apnea, and when the, when the iguana thought he was about to die, he would slap him with his tail and wake him up. I went into the impenetrable mystery of pet writing. The man talked to me. The iguana had no comment. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm the only pastor at First Baptist Church who, who tried to launch a dog shampoo line with some washed-up celebrities named John and Bo Derrick. John and Bo ran off with all the money, and I just was left with the shampoo. <laughs> Probably the only TV Baptist Hour preacher who showed up five years later sponsoring 
a food contest on the television food network holding up a jar of hot sauce that won my contest and had to announce the winning salsa is rise up and slap your mama. <laughs> it didn't help any that people who had watched me preach on TV emailed me and said, what in the world are you doing? John Claypool, somewhere, in one of his many great sermons about the prodigal son, said the prodigal's first problem was that he tried to be more than God intended him to be. But then John said he tried to be less than God intended him to be. Now, there's nothing wrong or sinful about writing about reptiles or selling hot sauce or writing about the best boudin sausage in Cajun country. I did that, too. <laughs> but if you're not using the gifts God gave you for what he wants you to do, you're never at home in your own skin. You're outside yourself, and you're not who you feel like God wanted you to be. And indeed, indeed, you're not. Now, I waited to get help. It's something when you've always helped other people to have to sit around and wait for somebody to help you to see what's next in your life. But you know, God does that. Sent an insurance company owner, a box manufacturer who listened to me to preach and I didn't even know he existed. <laughs> he sent a man who built a, a commercial garbage company who had collected all my sermons. I didn't even know he existed. He sent an E.K. Bailey who kept calling me and saying, don't give up. God wants you to preach. And he sends people at just the right time. Carl Bard, in a sermon on grace, told a story that catches the way I feel about that part of my life. He said there was a legend about a man crossing Lake Constance in Switzerland. He crossed it and he got to the other side and someone told him, you have just crossed thin ice. And looking back, the man was horrified. And he said, who will not fall into an abyss? Who knows that you are on the edge of death and that any moment you could have fallen through the thin ice. Part of what God must have done for Joseph, and I know he did for me, was to look back at vulnerable times and know that at any moment I could have fallen through thin ice. But God was there. And that leads me to really where I want to get with this. And I'll sit down. We read some hopeful verses a minute ago, and that is even when you don't know it, and don't want it. God is at work when you don't know what he is. Joseph was in that cistern, that pit, whatever it was. He could not have known that in the loins of his family was a baby named Moses. But unless he got to Egypt, Moses could never get people out. <laughs> that caravan of people, those Ishmaelites who took him down there, they didn't know that stamped into the DNA of that family was a Joshua. And that jailer who locked him up didn't know that locked inside that jail was one who carried the very genes of someone to come one day named 
David, whose greater son, Jesus. See, we don't know what God's doing. Other people involved in the story don't know about it either. I'm sure his brothers didn't know that Yahweh could use their anger and schadenfreude to get his will done. I'm absolutely sure that Mrs. Potiphar, with her histrionics and soap opera, <laughs> had no idea that her wandering eye would send him straight to his destiny. And I doubt that either the cupbearer or the butler knew or the jailer that they held keys that unlocked salvation history. The mystery of God's greatness is that all around you, God can be using people and things in an incredible synchronicity, and you don't know it, and they don't know it. In fact, he can do it in spite of you. I think anybody as competent as Joseph must have been planning every day, how can I get out of this place? Is there a way to dig a tunnel? Can I tie some sheets together? <laughs> I want to get back home. But, but God didn't want him out. It was in spite of him that God used his future. <laughs> over at Homestead Heritage, I, I like to go over and visit. One thing I've found out there, if you ever pronounce the name Dr. Roger Olson, it opens all doors there. Nobody knew me there, but, but my stock went up when I said that. But there's another, there's a grist mill there. It's a wheel, a big wheel. It's an 18th century grist mill they moved out there. And water turns that big wheel that turns an axle that turns a little wheel. Now, I am less than nothing of an engineer. I just sit there and look at that, astonished. A big vertical wheel somehow turning a little horizontal wheel. But I do know this. God can turn little wheels that move big ones and big wheels that move little ones. And nobody in the story knows that he's doing it. <laughs> the <laughs> God wants a 90-year-old prophet to read some handwriting on a wall at a feast. So a lifetime before that, he gets his supposed granddaddy to say, wouldn't it be good to conquer Jerusalem and haul off some Hebrew teenagers? Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was the big wheel, was really the little wheel, turning God's big wheel. A big wheel in Rome. Octavian Augustus. <laughs> that wouldn't it be good to know just how many people I control? And he turns a wheel that gets the Holy Family from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem, even though you're little, a guy who thinks he's a big wheel is really a little wheel turning a big wheel. I look at this school been reading Durso's biography of George Truitt. <laughs> Do you know why we're sitting here today? His father, Levi Truitt, really couldn't make a go of it farming in western North Carolina, and when he was 60, moved up to North Texas. His son, George, already had a scholarship to Mercer. He wanted to be a lawyer. 
But Levi sent word, said, Boys, Luther, George, I'm not going to make it here by myself. I need you to come over to Texas. And in that moment, the man who saved this university got to Texas. And instead of being in a law office in Atlanta, he found his destiny here. God turns wheels. Remember Star Trek? The original Star Trek, the real Star Trek. <laughs> Not the later imitation. Spock and Captain Kirk would play chess on a three-level chess set. Not only were you moving <laughs> horizontally, you moved vertically. It wasn't just uh, playing at one level, it was playing at three levels. I can testify to you, God can do that. He can get you from door to door to door when nobody knows what he's doing, even though some people think they do. Joseph Gilmore had preached at First Baptist Church in Philadelphia. He's preaching on Psalm 23, and he got stuck, like we preachers do sometime, on he leadeth me beside still waters. He just got swept away with that like preachers do. Couldn't go on. He leadeth me. They went to a deacon's house after that, and in the parlor, he took a piece of paper, and while they were talking, wrote some little words. He leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. Oh, words with heavenly comfort. For he handed it to his wife and forgot it. He was surprised. When he went to candidate at a Baptist church in Rochester, New York, he walked into the sanctuary, opened up their hymnal, and there were his words set to somebody's music. <laughs> you see, in our lives, sometimes we write words, but the real music of it is what God does. In spite of the difficulties you create or others create for you, intentionally, invisibly, God is working. It's George Truitt's favorite hymn, incidentally. Number 52, He leadeth me. He sure does, from door to door to door. Let's stand and sing.